Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 19. Glad to have you back on the program. Uh, there's something very interesting that uh, appeared in the New York Times the other day, and I say that uh, begrudgingly that the Times had something interesting, but uh, it was actually a, an op-ed, a piece by Nicholas Kristof, and uh, Nicholas Kristof is a very famous left-wing blogger. He, in fact, was the New York Times' first blogger, and he's got quite a following, and he published a little piece uh, entitled A Confession of Liberal Intolerance. And this particular piece focuses on the climate and the academy today in academia. And it's about how the academy is basically a closed shop for anyone who doesn't think and act just like the leftists who dominate the academy. And it's interesting that, um, you know, Christoph put this piece out there because it's very true. And so... I'm often asked, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, um, you know, why are you uh, in a two-year college environment? Uh, why haven't you gone on to a four-year college environment? Well, there's several reasons for that, but um, one reason is that there are so few schools with my profile that would uh, hire me um, because of what Christoph mentions, liberal intolerance. And I've been part of this for quite a long time, um, even going back to an undergraduate. Um, when I was at uh, Salisbury University in Maryland, I had a mentor there, an advisor, who was conservative. And he faced a lot of problems in the department because of that, in the history department because of that. Uh, in fact, he was, um, he was hired originally as um, a part-time employee kind of a contractual employee, and then uh, they were looking to fill the position that he had full-time, and so, of course, he was the prime candidate for it, and there was a lot of opposition to uh, hiring him because he was a conservative. And, uh, in fact, you know, there were some pretty uh, brutal behind-closed-doors meetings, apparently, where some of the left-wing faculty wouldn't leave the meeting until they tried to get their way, and they lost. Um, And so he had a, a very hard uphill battle to get this full-time tenure-track position at a regional university. And I have a lot of um, friends, good colleagues, uh, who are not teaching at Ivy League schools or big research institutions because of their profile, because of who they are, and they cannot get those positions. Uh, And so I also have some friends who didn't go through some of the things I went through in graduate school or as an undergraduate and the climate that that was there. When I went to graduate school at uh, at South Carolina, my advisor there also faced a lot of problems because of his uh, profile. He had 
written for all the major conservative publications. Uh, he was a well-known conservative, and um, he his his income never rose like other people's incomes in the department. Because, and he was uh, widely published; had published more than than uh, probably ninety-five or ninety-nine percent of the faculty in the department. Uh, he was the the editor of a major uh, figure, the papers of a major figure in American history, and so he was producing a tremendous amount of material all the time, and yet his income, his salary, did not reflect the contributions that he made to the institution. He also brought in a number of graduate students, which none of the other faculty members could really claim. There's a few that, that could bring students in, but people actually went to South Carolina to go work with him, so uh, he he um, he faced a lot of problems there because of his political leanings, and so this little piece by uh, by Kristoff, I think, is is instructive. And um, there have been books that have talked about this. You know, uh, there was uh, Jonah Goldberg's Liberal Fascism, uh, and uh, how the left really is intolerant. And again, going. In my particular situation, this was this was openly discussed all the way back in the '90s, uh, but uh, people have been talking about it even before that. But Kristoff actually does a nice job uh, pointing this out, and he said, "Quote: I've been thinking about this because on Facebook recently, I wondered aloud whether universities stigmatize conservatives and undermine intellectual diversity. The scornful reaction from my fellow liberals proved the point." Quote, much of the conservative worldview consists of ideas that are known empirically to be false, said Carmi. Quote, the truth has a liberal slant, wrote Michelle, and one other, Stephen said, why stop there? How about we make faculties more diverse by hiring idiots? Well, we think that too of you, but yet we tolerate you. So he says, to me, the, com- the conversation illuminated primarily liberal arrogance, the implication that conservatives don't have anything significant to add to the discussion. And then he says, Most f- my Facebook followers have incredible compassion for war victims in South Sudan, for kids who have been trafficked, even for abused chickens, but no obvious empathy for conservative scholars facing discrimination. And this is, this is particularly true. Um, you know, political thought is not protected. I mean, you have all these protected things out there now from the Department of Justice, but political thought is not protected. Uh, it's, it's not something that um, can be seen as a discriminatory position. If, if you're discriminated against because of your political views, that's perfectly okay. Uh, of course, you can't be discriminated against for just about anything else. And he talks about there was a, a black sociology conservative or evangelical sociology professor who said that he's more discriminated against in academia because he's a Christian. Not because he's, he's black, but because he's a Christian, an evangelical Christian. And Kristoff uh, points out that uh, conservatives are in economics and sciences and the hard sciences, and they're there. Uh, economics, definitely. But he says there are virtually endangered species in fields like anthropology, sociology, history, and literature. In fact, only 2% of English professors are Republicans. Now, I can, I can debate whether Republicans are actually conservatives. I mean, I know some, some are, but, um, but I mean, this is looking at that world from Democrat-Republican split. He says, in contrast, some 18% of social scientists say they're a Marxist. <laughs> 
I'm surprised it's that low. Uh, you know, one of my political science professors, when I was an, an undergraduate, I had a political science minor, and all of them were on the left. One of them was an avowed Marxist, and uh, very, you know, very proud of being on the left, and that was their worldview. That's what they taught in class. And so this was a way to indoctrinate. And as as Christ, uh, Christoph goes to say, uh, this becomes an echo chamber. The, the classroom, which is supposed to be a, a place of discussion and ideas, becomes an echo chamber for the left. My advisor in graduate school said that he, when he got to, um, to South Carolina, he really thought he was going to have real ed- ed- intellectual discussion with his colleagues. And they were going to talk about ideas and, and history and uh, different interpretations. But what he found was that they didn't want to discuss anything that wasn't their own worldview. And so... This gets into the idea, and I'm going to apply this to history, but I think particularly in, in the humanities, and history, in my mind, is more of a humanity than a social science, you know, the real professional history is dead. Um, because what you have in these departments, you have people that it's, it's uh, incestuous, uh, they all they all congregate together and then eventually uh, marry together and they create these these uh, I mean people say well this is just networking well that's true but um, it becomes a click that you if you're not in the click then you're uh, then you're not welcome uh, it becomes uh, nepotistic so they they hire each other and that's it and they don't really produce anything that's any good anymore. And history in general, what, you've, what you're seeing in, in the history profession is more and more monographs. People are moving away from general histories, sweeping histories that offer interpretive uh, breakthroughs or um, you know, interpretive discussion. And they're going into uh, you know, loggers in Oregon, uh, homosexual loggers in Oregon, and how that applied to uh, the logging industry. I mean... This is what kind of stuff, or uh, shopping malls, the influence of uh, shopping malls on American culture. And these things get published. Uh, and if you look at the history journals, it's even worse. You have these, these small little articles. They don't, I mean, so it's supposed to be adding context and, and uh, to, our, to our understanding of history and diversity to our understanding of history. But I had another advisor in graduate school point out that when you look at, say, for example, the, the field of Reconstruction, it's getting narrower and narrower as far as what people think about it. Now, some would say, well, that's true because, as this other person said, it's the truth. But is it? Because what they've done is blocked out any other interpretation, and if you don't believe in what they believe in, then you're not going to get published. You're not going to get your tenure track positions. Uh, you're, not, you're, you're not going to be welcome. You're persona non grata. And this is a very dangerous position for the future of American education. And this is why people are starting to reject the university. They're starting to reject higher education. They're starting to look outside of the academy for learning. They're starting to reject the classroom, the traditional, either public-funded or even sometimes private-funded classroom, because they don't believe that it reflects their values and there's nobody there that's going to uh, actually say things that they believe are true. And most people don't mind debate. Even students, they don't mind debate. They, they want to hear other sides of the story. They don't want to just hear what they think all the time. 
but they don't want to be told that what they think is completely wrong either. And this is this is humans in general. They want some affirmation of their positions, and not only that, they want to have different views on different things. So uh, when you create an echo chamber environment where the only view is the left view, well, that creates a problem. And professional history is is has gotten really really awful with this kind of stuff. And so this is why I've said, you know, popular history is the way forward because popular history reaches a wider audience every day of the week. And uh, I think some people have actually figured this out and they're starting to write, you know, histories that are very popular. And now not all these people are professional historians by training. They're, they're journalists or, and they can write. I mean, this is something that Shelby Foote talked about years ago. You know, the problem with historians is they don't know how to write. They can't write a book that people want to read. And so when he set out to write his Civil War narrative, he made sure that he could write. So he said, you know, writers and historians have a lot in common, and historians can learn a lot from writers, uh, you know, really good writers, but also really good writers can learn, can learn from historians and get the facts right. And so um, there, there has to be a balance. Most of your monographs in history are so bland and dry and, and frankly, boring that nobody would want to get through them. And they're on such minute topics that nobody cares. Um, so w- one of the other uh, uh, professors I had in, in uh, graduate school talked about you know, this, this particular debate in history. Should we go to monographs or should we go to sweeping histories? And his position was we should try to do more sweeping histories because the sweeping histories offer larger interpretive discussion. So you don't just write about uh, you know, what uh, cooks were doing in the Civil War and how people ate their food. You write about the Civil War, as you know, the, the term Civil War. Is it even a correct term? You write about the sweeping generalities of that particular time, and you create interpretive narratives. And then people can talk about those, and you actually have stimulating debate. Who cares what kind of rancid meat people were eating in the war? Or how people styled their hair. I mean, these are interesting things. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's uh, it's not that uh, you know cultural history is not interesting. I, th- I find it very interesting, in fact. Um, but even you can do cultural you can do cultural history in a very sweeping form. The, the the best book that I point to that is David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, which is a sweeping history of British and then later American culture. In the colonies, so you can do these sweeping histories, and they can be interesting. You don't have to focus on one little part of a history to have it be interesting. So I think this is a. But when when you do these things and you create an interpretive discussion, if you are not in line with the standard accepted narrative, as Tom Woods calls the three by five index card of allowable opinion, if you're not in that allowable opinion, then you're shunned, you're ostracized, you're not hired. You're not even considered. Now, there are some schools, of course, that will hire conservatives. Mostly they're private evangelical schools. But for the most part, even in those departments, sometimes you wouldn't, you wouldn't get hired. Because they're run by the left, even in those departments. Now, there are a few that aren't. So this is what, when, when people... I've had several people ask me this. This is what people uh, who are not on the left in history and literature, and this is what they're confronted with. 
unless they've, uh, as, as he says in the article, it's like they're in the closet. They hide who they are until they get tenure, and then they can come out. Uh, but even then, you might get stuck somewhere. Uh, and even then, you better produce some leading history on a particular field, or you are going to be, and, and there's no way they could not hire you. I mean, I think the nicest example of that is the Genoveses, you know. But Genovese, Eugene Genovese, started out as a Marxist historian writing accepted narratives about the South. And then only later, as he really read the material and he became more uh, interested in it and actually started sympathizing with the South in a way that did he become ostracized. But, of course, he had already become Eugene Genovese and his wife, Elizabeth Fox Genovese. I mean, they already become this this power couple when it came to writing history. Same thing with someone like Forrest MacDonald. I mean, so you have these people that have gotten good positions, but uh, it's because they couldn't ignore them. And so I guess in that way you could say, well, I'm, I'm going to write these histories that no one can ignore, and then they're going to have to hire me or they're going to have to accept me. Maybe. But I think one of the things you see is that more and more, uh, you, you better be, even if you're going to be a conservative, you better be more of a mainstream conservative and not take views that uh, would uh, not be in the mainstream in one way or another. So I love this article by Christoph. I mean, Christoph's at least being honest. Uh, he, he says, quote, this bias on campuses creates liberal privilege. A friend is studying for the law school admission test, and the test preparation company she is using offers test takers a tip. Reading comprehension questions will typically have a liberal slant and a liberal answer. He also says it's also liberal poppycock that there aren't smart conservatives or evangelicals. So, yeah, there's smart people out there who are evangelical Christians or conservatives, but they never get hired. He concludes, universities should be a hubbub of the full range of political perspectives from A to Z, not just from B to Z. So maybe we progressives could take a brief look, brief break, I'm sorry, from attacking the other side and more broadly incorporate values that we supposedly cherish, like diversity, in our own dominions. Well, that would be a start. I don't see it happening because as he got responses, we don't want to hire idiots. I mean, the people on the left, particularly in history departments, think that anyone who doesn't think like them, and, and historians are notoriously thin-skinned. If you criticize them, if you criticize their positions, they get very upset. And uh, they don't like to have anyone who disagrees with them around. They don't like to have anyone who publishes more than them around because that makes them look bad. And so they're going to hire mediocre people, oftentimes, who write stupid monographs that nobody cares to read and uh, because they think like them and they're no threat to them. And a real, a real strong department would have people that from a variety of, of fields and interests and uh, a variety of positions and perspectives who all publish well because that creates a very strong academic environment. And it used to be maybe 60 years ago, 70 years ago, that you did have people on the left and the right in different departments, and they would have debates, and this was stimulating for students. Now you don't even get that. You have to bring some outside activists on campus to have a debate, and then, they're try- and then people try to shout them down. You used to be able to do that in your own university, you have debate within the faculty. And that was okay because that was accepted as real academic rigor to have two people that had two different viewpoints 
instruct students because then they would get the full range of political thought or historical thought or literary thought. But we just don't have that anymore. So we have to go to things like this. The internet, podcasts, outside educational sources like learntruehistory.com, things like that, where uh, you can get a much more broad perspective on history and society and the sciences, uh, the hard sciences, soft sciences, humanities. Um, so the things are out there. I mean, the, internet, the internet is leveling the field a little bit for people looking for the stuff outside of the academy. And of course, those in the academy quickly try to dismiss these things. Well, that's just uh, internet or whatever the case may be. But um, it's, uh, it's becoming more and more acceptable and prevalent to have these type of things outside of the academy. So I thought this was an interesting piece, and I wanted to share it. And um, I think that it's, uh, it was a groundbreaking piece that you had this come out in the New York Times. Um, so until next time, we'll see you next, uh, next uh, episode on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>